0: This is The E-Commerce Leader, a show for you, the owner of a thriving online business. In this shorter episode, we bring you our hot takes on some topical, central e-commerce subjects, fresh from our expert panel, Chris Green, Jason Miles, Kyle Hamer, and myself, Michael Veazey. Let's jump in. Smart e commerce operators know that net profit is the lifeblood of a business, but a small and profitable business than a large one which earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook by Jason Miles gives you 17 specific proven profit taking actions. For a limited time, we are sharing this valuable resource with our listeners completely free. Download your 60 page workbook and start making your business more profitable today. Just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash Profit Habits. That's theecommerceleader.com forward slash Profit Habits. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the Ecommerce Leader Roundtable, where we have a chat about whatever's on our mind. And there's always something on our minds. We people with brains teeming with thoughts and ideas around business and e-commerce. So in no particular order, Kyle, why don't you kick us off?
1: Yeah, no, sounds good. The mind for me over the last few weeks is really been regarding Amazon and specifically how they're going to be able to pull off their upstream storage that they started to roll out in beta. And if you're not familiar with this, Amazon over COVID bought a bunch of warehousing space because they thought, well, we need more FBA space because they had this huge COVID bump. Well, then they're left with all this additional capacity that they didn't actually need. So what they ended up testing and trying to do is convert those warehouses to an upstream long-term storage called warehousing and distribution. Roll it out in beta. Now it's really interesting because what that could potentially do is compete against 3PLs in the marketplace at some level for their price per cubic square foot for long-term storage was really competitive. I think it was at like 40 per cubic square foot in the, during like non-peak season, which, w- which is really competitive. And then they guarantee a 99.9% in stock rate on FBA. And they actually automate moving the inventory over from their upstream storage to their to their FBA fulfillment warehouses. And they're not the first to do this. There are other bigger 3PLs like Deliver, which Shopify just purchased this last year, that does some, the exact same thing. They have upstream storage, then they have their fulfillment network, and they're moving stuff back and forth. So to me, I think it'll be interesting to, to see how that impacts logistics and if it can streamline costs for people and make your planning more efficient, make your operations more efficient as an Amazon seller, there are currently still some restrictions, not every category applies. Like, for example, if it has an expiration date, you can't use long term storage. So that does take out a lot of grocery and some other products that would be impacted by that. The other thing is that it is definitely still in beta. So not everybody's going to be able to put inventory into it yet. But I think if you couple that, the warehousing distribution with their global logistics program. Which is where you can basically do shared shipping costs from China on their boat. They have a logistics program that they run out of China. You could really streamline that potentially your cost structure where you could actually send in your container right to Amazon distribution and warehousing and then just trickle feed stuff into FBA, which will have an impact on like the IPI score, which is the metric that Amazon uses to measure how efficient you are in your inventory and therefore granting you more capacity in FBA so to me I think it's interesting to play with I think you know does it does it save people money from the 3PL side I think it possibly could and if they can pull it off and, and make it an actual program that makes sense and works for the the sellers of the world I think they might have another extension of FBA that will benefit the seller in in a big way
0: interesting. I mean, so from the very sort of Amazon centric point of view, I think there are much broader things to talk about here, but I would say the first thing that always strikes me with Amazon is like, mm, put all my eggs in one basket, and now we're going to put even more of them <laughs> into one basket. And um, there's the cynical side of me. The downside, the other side though, is of course that the cost of 3PLs, I've seen my, my clients sort of halve their, their net profit or their pre-tax profit based on the fact that the 3PL and logistics is just so much of a cost. When you yeah. have to use it so you know that's the, one of the things that strikes me is there's big up and big downsides really
1: yeah no 100 even shipping costs like even if you use a 3pl to do like direct fulfillment to your customers the cost of actually shipping that it's hard to beat fba in terms yeah. of the, their cost structure for it i mean and you could end up paying 30 40 50 more or higher sometimes using the 3PL to ship directly to the, to your consumers and your customers. So it really does, it's, it's worth exploring if you, if you are an FBA physical product seller, like how's that going to impact your, your cost structure? Because if you can actually trim it, yeah, I mean, I still think you probably need to have some level of a backup plan to Amazon as a 3PL, but I don't think you need to rely on it as heavily as you once did potentially moving forward. But it's always
2: good to have a backup. 3PL, the bane of people's existence. All all I hear from coaching clients is Uh, uh, like, my warehouse is really screwing everything up. I'm having to fly to wherever to (laughs) confront them because they keep ghosting me. Or then, like we had one client whose warehouse literally burned all his products. (laughs) like got on fire. That's (laughs) (laughs) like a three-year drama in our coaching client's life and they were underinsured oh yeah so yeah that is that if amazon can solve that problem for you know for third-party sellers then you know i mean they 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 were pretty good until they outgrew their their physical space outgrew their ability you know the demand for the space and then they started you know yeah rank breaking up the fees and then of course people hated that and they, they cap your inbound. They do all the shenanigans to try to minimize the uh, total holdings they have in their system. And it's so infuriating for people.
1: It it is. I remember the day where you could literally ship in like container full of goods directly to FBA and you could just sit on it and leave it in there for the the year and not have any sort of negative impact. But to say you remember the day is like, what was that? Three and a half,
2: four years ago.
1: (laughs) Pretty much. Long ago. (laughs) It was like, it was like five Five years years ago, ago. like when you could actually do that. And, but then they progressively, to your point, they realized it's, there's no money in being in the warehouse storage business. It's only money being made in the fulfillment business of them moving goods. And they said, I don't want to, we don't want to store your stuff. We only want to sell things to to customers. Therefore, now you have long-term storage fees. Now you have FBA storage limits. You had to figure out a way to store your stuff, you know, on your own and then you send it in. Yeah. The amount that we deem to be appropriate
2: for your particular race. Yeah, I got to tell you, the control freak in me always, and we, you know, do this in our own business as well. I just encourage people, bring it, all, bring it in-house as much as you can, you know, and obviously, you know, FBA is going to have its own load of volume of goods. But beyond that, you know, can you ship, you know, have a shipping manager, have, you know, people don't want to do it. Then they're caught in the web of, you know, drama of other people's businesses. So, what do you think, Chris? There's a lot that affects all this stuff. And
3: I think the piece that maybe people aren't realizing, and maybe we're not even thinking about it here, but to me, it's prime eligibility that drives so much, so many decisions. So many, all of this stuff is based on is it prime eligible or not? Otherwise, who cares? Shipping products yeah. is not art. Warehousing stuff is not expensive. Like it's not a big deal, but if you, if you want your stuff to fly, it has to be prime eligible. So you have to use FBA, or you have to use some kind of print on demand platform that has prime eligibility through KDP or virtual Amazon, all this stuff. So Kyle, you're, you're giving me all these like numbers and using all these words that just make me like want to shut down and not even list all this like fancy logistic upstream, downstream, all this stuff. And I'm thinking, okay. How can I bet on, okay, I'm going to focus, I'm going to listen to Kyle, where are the opportunities here? Because that's, you know, some people can hear something and be like, oh, I don't want to deal with it. Or, hey, you know what? I'm sure there's opportunities here. So I'm thinking books. How can I get my books into the system to where it's going to make sense and I can lower costs and get it to, and like, wait, my stuff's not printed on demand. That doesn't affect me at all. How about like merch? And merch from Amazon. It's like, no, that stuff doesn't affect me at all. And then I found this Valentine's Day card. Actually, I just made it really quick. Print on Denise, this is Valentine's Day and I'm just thinking of all these problems like I don't have to even think about what you're talking about Kyle. like it doesn't even it doesn't affect me one bit except the prime eligibility keeps coming back because yeah. I'm yeah. writing a new book uh I would love it's about flipping it's you know, like, like you know yard sales and like the easiest stuff that you can do to make money on the internet and I'm like you know what here's how you do it I'm gonna bundle my book with any Gary V book right buy one of Gary's books get my book absolutely free. It's the perfect interest, the perfect lead magnet. It's it's perfect. But you know what? I can't bundle books as the primary product in a bundle because of Amazon restrictions and limitations. You have to pay attention to some of those details. And I'm like, you know what? I can just sell them on eBay. You know what? I can just sell them myself. I got a Shopify store. I know a guy who knows everything there is to know about Shopify. Not a big deal, right? What am I losing? Prime Prime eligibility, which means I'm back to, do I do FBA? Do I do... Like, how can I get my stuff to be prime eligible and maintain control and limit my exposure and minimize my risk, lower my costs, but remain prime eligible? And that's just why Amazon still is that 800-pound grill. Like, they hold all the cards. If you want a humongous chunk of e-commerce business, your products have to be prime eligible. Not explicitly prime eligible, but have a prime eligible option. Let's all say it together. Prime eligible. That, that know was a, it's, it's less about fba right because like you guys i was one of the very first fba sellers on fba yeah. and i remember I and mean, i wrote the first book about fba and i remember telling everybody i read the long tail it's probably one that i probably interpreted the long tail book the wrong way because i was like oh long tail this stuff will, everything will eventually sell send in that 20 million ranked book it only costs mm-hmm. one cent per month or one cent per year long term like not, not even long term storage fees it's just a basic storage just send everything in. I'm sure Amazon was like, oh, who wrote this stupid book? Who, <laughs> who is, is this guy? In? We've got, I'm probably responsible for the reason when you try to send in a VHS copy of speed with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock, where they say, no, no, we've got, we've got enough of those in the warehouse. Okay. We don't need 754 copies of speed on VHS. Okay. Enough. And it's, you know, things have changed. And like, you know, The the theme is like, you got to change along with business. You've got to like, listen to people like Kyle and be like, hey, is there an opportunity there or not? And decide, is there? Or is there an opportunity somewhere else? And you know, where to spend your time and where to, you know, put your attention. For some sellers, what Kyle said is very important. You know, for print-on-demand sellers, we're thinking, this is so awesome. Not that it's not important, but I don't have to worry about that stuff. That's why I I spend so much more time on the print-on-demand side. But it's, there's a lot out there. Yeah. 100%. That reminds me really
0: uh, that Elon Musk quote which I think I have learned from a guy called Jason Miles on the internet court, which is the best part is no part, which is in other words, if you don't have to do the painful thing in the first place because of your business model, that's the best thing. The second, the opposite extreme though, to your point, Jason, of are you willing to build your own fulfillment center and combine it with you've got to be prime eligible? So to combine those two points, so Chris's and Jason's, I would say I've got one client that has done that. They've got their own warehouse and they've got seller fulfilled prime, which is hard to get, hard to maintain. And you're risky unless you're really good at what you do. But what you do have, of course, is a warehouse with highly trained staff yeah. such that you're not got the same sort of single source denunciers, as, bring everything in FBA and you're not subject to the FBA inbound mm-hmm. shipment problems,
2: which so play, if people at Q4 particularly, so, Seller you know, not easy prime. to achieve though. Seller fulfilled prime key metric is speed of shipment. Mm-hmm. eBay mm-hmm. used to demand that of us 10 years ago. No, no, here's no. the interesting you thing know, about out the four in two
1: days or you in trouble.
2: I mean, like Seller yeah.
1: Seller sell sell fulfilled Prime was this big push that Amazon did and then they rolled it back. because yeah, it and probably it worked too well. Exactly. Because like what what is the primary driver to use FBA? Is to Chris's point, you get prime eligibility. So if it worked too well and people are moving out of FBA yeah, and they're buy, losing buy. money, guess guess what program is now on a wait list only? <laughs> seller yeah. fulfilled Prime.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. There you go. Well, it's always, it's a, it's a cat and mouse game, right? Yeah. With an 800 pound gorilla. Yeah. As you say, cat and
0: mouse game with an 800 pound gorilla, that's pretty much it. Well, to to change topic quite violently, but I mean, I'm going to segue using Chris's visual cue of the, the Valentine's card. So I'm always, I always think of Valentine's day in, in the following way that I go out and spend more money than I feel I should as a consumer. And I think, ah, oh, this is a great marketing opportunity. That reminds me I should talk about that. So any bit of a spin on it to try and make it less kind of something that you bung on your blog post because you can't think what else to write about. The interesting thing about Valentine's Day, let's go back in layers. So Hallmark has been selling cards for Valentine's Day for about a hundred years. So they've done very well out of it. They commercialized something that was a famous festival. That came off the Middle Ages when people in, you know, medieval times in Europe gave each other cards. That came off the back of um, a beatification by a pope and, and sort of creating a saint's day. And that came off the back. Ultimately, like so many Christian festivals was pasted on the back of a pagan festival, which is pretty fruity. And I won't tell you what they did, but it was, you know, quite sexy and not particularly what you call romantic. So that struck me as an interesting spin on the whole business. Cause I, I just kind of nerded out about this because I couldn't see it last night. And I was just Googling Valentine's Day. And obviously, one very obvious thing to just remind people to do is make sure you catch the major festivals. Like I had a a client who's selling chocolate bundles, products recently, and they were doing very well. I said, okay, go and produce a hundred of them. He said, what? I said, yeah, it's working. So double down, triple down, quadruple down, and we'll see how it does. But I said, okay, your focus has to be Valentine's Day. It's really too totally simple. Don't miss the obvious. So that's the first lesson for me. But the other one is, you know, when there is something that has more depth historically and it has resonance, there is a deeper kind of hold that it has on the consciousness than if you just come up with something like Prime Day, which is a big deal for Amazon sellers and will it exist in 10 years? Who knows? So those were my thoughts about Valentine's Day. So i would chuck that one in there. Veteran e-commerce operators know that net profit is the vital lifeblood of a business. Better a small and profitable business than a large one that earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook is designed to give you 17 actionable, specific and proven profit-taking actions. You can implement them at your own pace and let the power of this trusted framework revolutionize your company. The Profit Habits Workbook makes profit improvement a fast and efficient achievement. For a limited time, we are now sharing this resource with our listeners completely free with no strings attached. To download your 60 page workbook and begin your journey to a more profitable business today, just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits.
3: You like the history of Valentine's Day, where I would market it as, as your products for one of those older days to see who catches it or just and just to differentiate. Like I wasn't paying attention. It's Valentine's Day today. I'm like, oh, it's like, oh, shoot. Okay. It's just, you know, today on calendar. But I'm like, you know what? I was going to send an email to my list and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to send it today because it's going to get mixed in with any other marketer or company that's putting out a happy Valentine's Day from your big streaming company or Like mistake in my opinion, but I'm not going to like lump my message in with, with all that extra stuff. So you do have to pay attention, whether it's for managing inventory or for promotions or for just not being tone deaf, depending on what it is. All of a sudden you're like, Oh, I shouldn't say that on this day kind of thing. But yeah. People love to spend money. I mean, everybody here knows it's just a day. Everybody here knows that your significant other does. See it's going to get mad if you don't spend 100 or $200 or something more ridiculous on the state, but we do it anyway. So from the other side, we well, you might as well sell something to everybody that wants to buy something anyway. And yeah. you know what? There should be like an advertising campaign of like justify, hey, you know how you couldn't justify this purchase all year long? Well, why don't you get it for Valentine's Day? And like a justification, you could rerun that that type of promotion for every single day, every single holiday or single day. Yeah. No, don't get me started on. Get any marketing idea, pet. We'll never get off of it.
0: Sounds great. I like this justified buying an expensive thing because uh, some kind of holiday, I think, is brilliant.
2: Justification buying. Yeah, you write a whole book about it. Right? I would. A huge opportunity for Valentine's Day. Uh, obviously, the huge opportunity, a lot of the holidays in terms of marketing. We had a client who did a very cool thing. His primary customers are, are women, older ladies. And so he ran a flash sale during the Super Bowl. And it was like 40% off only during the game itself. And it was a really novel thing because, you know, a lot of people do a a sale of some variety on Thanksgiving, Christmas, Valentine's day, President's day, that kind of thing, but his was a kind of a novel twist on making something unique out of a surprising, you know, annual day. And uh, that was pretty cool. I liked it and he crushed it. I mean, he just, he totally destroyed it. Uh, this is kind of an interesting take on using a special day in a, in a unique way.
3: We're differentiating, which is probably the bigger point, right? It's loud out yeah. there. Yeah. How do
2: you, someone yeah. see your message and it's differentiating? Yeah. And his thing was so smart because he didn't have to say it overtly to his customers that the sale is happening during the Super Bowl because number one, you don't care about the Super Bowl. And we all know that generally. The husbands are going to be obsessed with Super Bowl and therefore he's giving his customers an opportunity to go shop online, have a fun time during that period of time where they otherwise would just be, you know, kind of, you know, not into a game or, you know, you know what I mean? And that's, that's maybe sexist or whatever, but generally speaking, at least in our family, my wife watched the game with me so she could watch the commercials and, uh, you know, that's kind of what we do. I- so. Yeah, all the people like me that don't really
0: know what the Super Bowl was until you told me about it on the podcast the other day, Jason. I think you told me privately. To be fair, you didn't reveal my ignorance, so I'm revealing it now. But <laughs> there is, there's that's fantastic kind of counter marketing, isn't it? To go, for example, the World Cup. Like I, I couldn't care less about the World Cup or Harry's latest book. A lot of things that people care passionately about. So, if you wanted to sell to me, the fact that you were selling something was kind of Anti-World Cup, that, that is much less crowded market than the very obvious thing of selling to football as in soccer fans during the World Cup. Whereas you said, Chris, it's a lot out there and, you know, you're going to make a lot of money if you can afford the advertising and punch through the noise. But if you kind of zig when they zag, as they say, I think that's really smart marketing, I like that idea.
3: Just make sure you have a prime eligible offer. Yes.
0: Hey folks, thanks for listening to another episode of The Ecommerce Leader. We hope you like the new format. So we still got the same wonderful panelists, Chris Green, Kyle Hamer, Jason Miles and myself, if I can call myself wonderful, probably can't. But we are here just basically sharing what's on the top of our minds. And obviously we are deep in e-commerce day by day. So we hope that this provides you with some useful starting points for thinking. A couple of things from today, um, upstream storage before you, in other words, hit FBA or otherwise another fulfillment center, um, is always a thing. It's always a discussion point in the mastermind, I find, and amongst clients that Jason and Kyle have, or that Chris talks to. And, uh, so Amazon is an interesting option. Will they be, uh, more efficient? Will they be, you know, useful? Will they be, uh, risky? <laughs> you know, so, uh, interesting to assess that for yourself. Uh, valentine's day is my just example of a marketing event sometimes it has more resonance uh, than it had. Um sometimes you can um, use it to piggyback on an existing day sometimes it's a day to avoid like prime day or valentine's day everyone's doing the same thing um, and sometimes you can play against the expectation for example marketing to women during the super bowl because we know damn well they're not going to be watching the super bowl so Lots of ways you can be more imaginative than the traditional thing, but it does come down to the very conventional thing of having a marketing calendar and uh, having a plan for creating events or piggybacking on existing events. So pretty simple, not as sophisticated as Kyle's insight. The next uh, bit of the panel discussion, we're going to be talking about a very interesting ethical dilemma, which relates to a very famous product group, which is something we all have to think about from time to time as, as business owners, as well as consumers and email lists. Uh, It's not always about the size of your list. That's all I'm going to say for now. Stay tuned for more wisdom from us the next time. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. And thank you very much for listening to The Ecommerce Leader. Hey folks, welcome back to The Ecommerce Leader. We are today having the second part of a four-way panel discussion where we're basically saying what's on our minds. And today, two things on uh, our panelists' minds. Chris Green wants to talk about his email list. It's not all about the size of the list. We'll talk about why that's important. And Jason's been wrestling with an ethical dilemma, which I think faces many of us as consumers, as well as as e-commerce operators. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Excellent. Well, Chris, look, I know you've been house cleaning in, in your digital world. So tell us about what you've been up to when I've been out buying expensive Valentine's gifts.
3: I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep the, the premise of it very simple. I got an email list. I don't email consistently. I don't keep my list warm kind of thing. And I was like, you know what? I got to clean this thing up. Most most is cold and all this stuff. And the what's stopping me is this overthinking, this overanalyzing, oh, well, what about this one person? What about this one email address? And instead of just committing and not overthinking and taking action and making decisions and all of these things, which apply more than just to your email list, but to everything, we've got to make decisions and not have this Oh, but what about this one potential random outlier situation? Possible? Yes. But it's worse to do nothing and be like, well, I'm going to keep all those outlier situations you know, open just in case they work. Then you don't get the benefit of, hey, I actually cleaned up my email list. Hey, everybody's actually now engaged. Hey, everybody that wants to hear from you is now hearing from you. Everybody that didn't want to hear from you is still not hearing from you. All these simple things that you want, you're not getting or I'm not getting because I'm overthinking all this stuff. I spent the last hour in convert ConvertKit trying to figure out what's cold subscriber actually mean like when was actually time I sent an email like I actually googled how long ago was 90 days so that I can figure out the date of like when I sent the email and who's not opening and all this stuff instead of just saying look they're not opening your emails send one last email saying hey I'm just cleaning this up if you don't hear from me it's cool if you do here's how you get back on my list and let it go and be done with it and not worry about these little oh I never like I know these situations that are going through my head and I'm Fighting them. And I share this story. So anyone else that is fighting these little voices in your head of like, Oh, but what about, but what about this? What if someone's still looking for you on your old AOL email address? You better, better keep checking that. No, you don't. If they need to get a hold of you, they'll find you. Okay. They don't need to hold on to you. Oh my God. These are the things that I do and I share, let people know that you're not alone. If you are doing these same things, it's a struggle, but it's a struggle that, that I'm committed overcoming and I hope other people can as well.
0: Oh man, this sounds like my entire digital life, like fighting myself being perfectionist about ridiculous things. It's it's yeah, particularly emails. I, I think about what you were saying. I'm thinking, oh my God, I, I need to clean my email list up. I don't know what the deliverability is, you know, based on some of the stats, but it's not good. But it feels like a really small list. It's exactly the same thing mentally as somebody letting go of revenue when uh, actually a lot of those things are selling and making precisely zero gross profit, never mind any costs of acquiring the customer or anything else. And uh, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to get things up. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Email list growth is a vanity metric until it gets too big. And then you realize, wait, 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 this is like expensive, first of all, and inefficient. And uh, so list hygiene is a huge part of thinking that through. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to have an email monthly bill of a thousand bucks or 1500 bucks if you don't have to. I mean, you know, but if you get a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand names, that's what you're going to be paying. And so it is one of those things that most people don't do, but it's it's wise to do. I think the email metric that gets ignored the most
1: is revenue per subscriber. Mm. Like, can you measure how much revenue per person on your list you have? Is it going up or is it going down? Like, yeah, because you Um, can have open rates, you can have amazing open rates, but nobody clicks and nobody buys your offer. Who cares? I mean, you could have 500,000 people on your email list and if it only makes you 500 bucks because your Mm -hmm. list is bad,
3: doesn't do you any good. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've worried more over the unsubscribed and like, oh, my feelings are hurt if someone unsubscribed, oh my gosh, what, what, what did I do wrong and make it all (laughs) personal, which Mm -hmm. is just nonsense. My friend, John Lawson, who I think most of you know, (laughs) he had a phrase for his email list. He said it's buy or die. Yeah. And I don't, I didn't like that at first because I was thinking it was too commercial. It was like, oh, is my list only to get people to buy? It's like, well, it's not only get people to buy, but they can, open, yeah. they can buy and they are yeah. perfectly capable if they don't want to hear from me or yeah. they're not issuing the offer to not open it, to delete it, or if they prefer their choice, unsubscribe, buy mm-hmm. or die, like buy something, read or, or unsubscribe and then stop taking it personal. And I hope. I've honestly never done this. I don't go in and it's like, ooh, unsubscribe and go look at the names and like, oh, I don't, I've thankfully never done that. I'm not bed, but I could, I know it's, well, I know it's there, right? I know I could mm-hmm. if I wanted to. And mm-hmm. I'm like,
2: no, don't do it. Cause it's not personal. They can get back on your list if they want to. Well, one of the things that you have to think through is what did they sign up for? Mm-hmm. And if you have too good an ethical bribe and the ethical bribe is why they signed up and they get it, they've been satiated. Like, they, they, you gave them something they wanted to join your list. They didn't want to join your list. They wanted what you were giving them to join your list. They got that. Your emails for the next five years was never a part of their calculus. Right. You know, they just wanted the goodie that you're offering to join the list. Peace Which out. is totally
3: cool. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Which, which is so like, But <laughs> if you're good enough, like if, if you can keep them because your
2: right. five years of emails are actually having some kind of value in them. Yeah, or maybe exactly. they didn't ever want to do that. Maybe they just wanted the thing and they got the yeah. thing, they, which yeah. is still cool. Which yeah. is still, still
1: good. One of my favorite campaigns to send when I was doing a lot of email marketing was the Dear John campaign, which is essentially, hey, you haven't been engaging or opening up our emails. Maybe we need to break up. If you want to keep going, great. Click here. If not, here's the unsubscribe link. Go for it. That's exactly what I'm doing. But, but
3: I can't send it today because today's
1: Valentine's
0: Right, yeah, it, it's. We have a dear like, John. Yeah, I'll talk about uh, time.
3: I'll uh,
1: you, you should you should, do, you should do your breakup email. On I, Valentine's think we Day. I think you yeah, I think I should. I, I, but that, I the, the thing is that it, time, left, it
0: would be. It would be. entertainingly blunt, and I think the people that like that kind of thing would snigger and probably resubscribe. Okay. I would. Uh, if I saw let that, I said, like, hey, hey, "When
1: when it's been done to me on email lists, you know, I've been marginally paying attention. And maybe I haven't done It it, d- it definitely triggers. Like I'll open that email and be like, oh." And then make a decision. Oh yeah, I still want to see this person's email and I'll, I'll, or I'll make
0: the decision right there. Veteran e-commerce operators know that net profit is the vital lifeblood of a business. Better a small and profitable business than a large one that earns no money. The Profit Habits Workbook is designed to give you 17 actionable, specific and proven profit-taking actions. You can implement them at your own pace and let the power of this trusted framework revolutionize your company. The Profit Habits Workbook makes profit improvement a fast and efficient achievement. For a limited time, we are now sharing this resource with our listeners completely free with no strings attached. To download your 60-page workbook and begin your journey to a more profitable business today, just visit theecommerceleader.com forward slash profit habits. No, I don't want to do it,
1: but more often times I will open that email if I get it in response. So, oh, but here's the, so
2: here's the devil's advocate side of it. If we were really trying to be courteous to them, we would interpret their non-openings as their message and not make them do another active step that we didn't want. They, they didn't want to do anyway. So just purge your list if you're being super generous to them, but we're not being super generous to them because we're, what we really want is we really want them to open our newsletters every week right. and click yeah. on our stuff to yeah. buy our things. That's what, That's what we, we really want. Yes, I, it is.
3: Okay. Well, that is, that could be an accurate interpretation coming, coming yeah. from me, right? As someone I'm on a, I've unsubscribed from so many things. Yeah. And there are a lot of people that I stay subscribed to. That I don't open their emails, yeah, right? Like no, Ryan Holiday sends out his daily stoic, yeah. whatever. I rarely open it. But I don't want to be unsubscribed. I get enough from his title just to be like, right. oh, you know I, what? I, I need to remember the I, mentality of stoicism. Yeah. Of I'm not, if I all of a sudden stop getting, I'd be like, Ryan, what the heck? Like I was, I was on your list. No, I didn't open anything, but I was getting but something. I read your fun. subject lines and they really spoke to me every single day. <laughs> They but should have, be. I would start yeah. just sending subject lines. That's and how they, good my my emails will be. But
0: I, that would seen. be a fun game. I, I'd like yeah. when you get look at the open rates. Like so you, you, would, you, you, you wouldn't get
1: deliverability because <laughs> the spam filters would would block you. <laughs> but, okay, but I need but, them to
3: actually but, click and open it <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but here's the thing: fun. the worst thing, the worst place to be in any marketing scenario is is having your customer be ambivalent to you, like mm. they just don't care. And that's essentially when people get your emails and they don't do anything. Like at least the dear John forces them to make a conscious decision. Do I really want to value this person? And I just got too busy or too distracted, or
2: is their content not worth but it? To, or, but do to do this point, it? they're not—they're not being ambivalent. You're just misinterpreting how they use your content. They're maybe, maybe saving it up for a rainy day. Maybe every six months they want to check in on you. Maybe it it's possibly. something you don't want to have happen, but that's what they want. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it is interesting. That's the uh, daily stoic. You might
3: you might read them all like if one. Or just, it's a reminder yeah. to go check his website or just, just a reminder that snack. he's out there. Like, like I, I know some real estate guys who put out emails just for the awareness. Yeah. Just yeah. Like, oh, if true. I ever need yeah. a real estate agent, which I don't need yeah. every day or every
1: week or every right. month. Yeah. But oh, that's top of mind. It's like, it's like Coke, you know, they run, com- <laughs> does this Coke need to run commercials to make money? No, like everybody knows the brand, but they still spend millions of dollars to, to continue top of mind awareness.
2: Yeah. Another example was like Jeff Walker's work. He does an annual launch campaign that's free of training. I like to do it every year. I don't want his weekly YouTube video about this and that marketing. So for a whole year, I ignore him. And when I don't, I don't. So I, anyway, Michael, I could there. be a
0: segmentation thinker. I can if, if people that click on annual launch stuff a lot, then mm-hmm. should be in a separate list. And to your point, Jason, about the ethical bride, this is a very very interesting point. I'd literally just created one for the e commerce leader, right? But having thought about that, obviously we'll give them, you know, your wonderful workbook, which is a beautifully produced thing with fantastic frameworks that is genuinely of value. But the thing is that we wanted to open emails and buy more stuff off us. Of. So I think that one of the things to do is to try and set things up such that there is email content that is not just a bunch of broadcast emails randomly about anything you do, but is an autoresponder that relates precisely to the subject of the thing they've signed up for. And I I have set those up in the past and it does get a better open rate, but it's obviously a fantastic amount of work.
2: So it's only worth doing for, you know, something that's a big part of what you do. I think. Yeah. Yeah. My yeah. Experience. Well, final thought on my side from what Chris is saying is, you know, it's even compounded worse problem when you personally change your story and topics and life work over time. You know, like people sign up for my list 10 years ago, we're hearing all about Pinterest power, the book I wrote at the time and marketing on Pinterest.com. Well, I haven't talked about that in the last seven years, you know, but those people still on the list, I guess they're hearing the latest thing, which they didn't ever really sign into, you know? So that's another reason to sort of update and purge and think through the buy or die or the your John layer. I think you can have fun with it to your point, Chris. I think it is
0: a kind of, there's a terrible FOMO fear of letting go of something that could just possibly have been value. I totally hear you on that. And I guess that one, one antidote to that is to have fun with it and go a bit the opposite way and do a Dear John mm-hmm. letter and, 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 be cool with the fact that you're going to get a bigger percentage of unsubscribes from that than you would for most things, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's supposed to be having that answer. But so, so Jason talking of, I'm going to segue beautifully,
2: talking of books, which we weren't, tell yeah. us about your thoughts about books. All right. Book book Club is this topic of mine for me today. No, not about my own book. Although my own book I'm working on is doing well. It's number one right now in nonprofit management category on, on Amazon. But I came across a book that I wanted to mention because I want to advocate for the topic and I don't know what to do with it other than just talk about it with people. It's called Cobalt Red and it's by a British university professor, Siddharth Kara. I first heard the narrative about the book on the Joe Rogan podcast. And then it was a pre-sale at that point and it came out on February 1st. It was a New York Times bestselling book this last week. And um, so I got the Audible edition and it's basically a description of, to to specifically say what it's about, it's about conflict minerals in the Congo and uh, the Copper Belt region runs from Congo to North Zambia, Northern Zambia. It's called the Copper Belt. So I'm familiar with the area, I've been to Zambia a ton of times and that's where ministry is. But I had never really understood the detail associated with what's called artisanal mining and mad scramble right now that the world is going through to get cobalt. And as it happens, this is the place on the earth that has the highest concentrations of cobalt that's as accessible at sort of a surface level. And this book is an expose on the worst hell you can imagine in terms of forced labor, child, basically slavery. These kids basically from, you know, childhood are in these artisanal mining camp projects and, but the, the hellishness of it is this stuff's toxic. And they also dig mines, shallow mines to go after this stuff. And they send all the kids down in these mines. They literally have mine collapses every week. And this book is just a punch. To the gut, because the bottom line on this stuff is lithium is is what they're all after, and lithium is key ingredient in every you know battery storage device for electronics. And the lithium, the pursuit of it is just it's an unquenchable global appetite right now. And uh, you know, I mean, know I I love my iPhone, I love my iPad, I love my iMac, my MacBook, you know, my AirPods, the whole thing. But listening to this book is just like my gosh, what are we doing? And all the big tech companies deny anything associated with artisanal mining and say it doesn't exist. And this guy has all the proof, the interviews, the photos, the videos, and it is just tragic. So sorry to end our conversation on a downer note. And I don't know if you guys have looked into conflict minerals or not, or the whole cobalt and, you know, lithium battery deal, but it's brutal.
0: I'm a big follower of Peter Zion and he's a generalist, not a specialist in this area, but he does talk about a lot of things where he said, I'm a green, but I'm a green who could do math. And he says, so I don't get invited to the green conventions. And this is one step further than that, which is like, there is no such thing as a free lunch. I mean, yes, electric cars are going to be less polluting. The kind live in London, which is just absolutely toxic atmosphere because of of the, the cars belching out exhaust fumes and okay. So you have various things you can do about that, all of which have ramifications, but the whole electrical thing, like it's. Mm -hmm. virtuous or modern or somehow gets away from physics and awkwardness of mining things in difficult places. Not only is it not as, as green as, as that, and it's not just better than coal or oil mining, but it turns out the complexity and the human rights challenges are about 10X what you'd have with any of those industries. So it's, it's a huge area and it's one that the world's going to have to grapple with if it's absolutely serious about electrifying, because I don't think I think this is just like the thin end of the wedge. It's huge complexity. Apart from anything else, even if you just ignore the huge, I don't think is the right to do. There isn't enough of these minerals in the world, as according to the, the things that I've read in many cases to build anything like enough electric cars to replace the gas and diesel ones. Like nothing. Like that. so there you go. Yeah. Big, big topic.
2: Yeah. And you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, like Tesla and Apple are the two obvious, you know, corporate demanders. Of this product, Tesla my number one stock holding. I sold out of my Shopify shares early in the pandemic and moved everything on uh, my portfolio into Tesla. So as a shareholder, it's really tragic. And he, Joe Rogan did a Twitter poll and he said, who can solve the conflict minerals situation? Toyota, GM, Ford, Elon, you know, and basically everybody voted and it was, you know, unanimous. Elon's the only person who would honestly Figure out how to solve this, and he is moving to battery storage systems that are lithium-free. I guess, but he hasn't really come out and, like, you'd think the righteous thing to do—not religiously, but you know, just socially—would be to come out and say, "Look, I'm going to talk to this guy. I'm going to say, you know, name this, and actually, you know, talk about how we're addressing it." And I'm waiting for you know Tesla to do it or Apple, because you'd think they would have like a moral high ground they'd step into. Mm-hmm if they would own it, and I'm not talking religiously, of course, and just, just socially, culturally, like, it's just such an obvious evil, you know, so anyway. Mm.
3: Well, there's been a lot of bad things like human history. And I've, I, I haven't done enough, I'm not a specialist or an expert on any of this stuff. But I have seen a pattern of a lot of things that had very, very negative things tied to them. Uh, I mean, the kind of an easy one or uh, a less or non-controversial one is like factory farming, Mm -hmm. where no one's pro factory farming, but for us as a society to get to a place where we can DNA manufacture meat in a lab kind of thing, we probably as a society, society had to go through factory farming to get to the point where we had enough wealth and assets and technology and knowledge and cooperation to do genetically modified growing meat in a lab. Where if we said, look, 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 we, we need to go from hunting and gathering and like small farms to genetically modified giant click. I don't see a scenario where that really happened. And I've seen this type of pattern all over the place. You could apply it to Amazon where Amazon workers were underpaid and, and getting hurt way too often in the warehouse and all these things. Well, for Amazon to get to the size that it is, and I don't know if this is actually kind of factually true, but to, to get to the size and scale where they can give full benefits to a factory worker in this monstrous company. They had to get to a profitability level where they were able to expand, grow. And was there another way to get there? I don't know, but maybe the only way to get there was through, Hey, we can only pay this much and blah, 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 blah. And maybe the same thing historically will be addressed here to be like, yeah, unfortunately we had to go through this terrible strip mining and conflict mineral phase thankfully we addressed it as humans
2: and now we are here and I wish that was true. Uh, Maybe the evolu- so the, yeah, the evolution of civility, I guess, is the idea there. And I think that can be true in countries that have accountability metrics and measures and systems. And, and the truth is Central Africa has been pillaged from the time of copper awareness, rubber plant, you know, rubber trees. It's just a, a one, one, uh, tragic pillage after the next and and the and the evolution of that civility has not manifested itself in those countries and and you and and there's no way around it saying that you if you look at the situation we're culpable you know in the west is it's you can't put it on them and, and maybe there's bad actors there but you you have to say that the culpability lies with incessant demand for corporate profits and systems of sales for devices that we love you know that's the that's the the horrible tension this book puts you in is that man i love my apple products but man i just can't co-sign on what's happening in the congo right now you know but I think to, to Chris's point, I mean, there may be
0: different mechanisms in history that, that cause this to get corrected. And in, you know, in the UK in the 19th century, the factory owners were forced to up their game and stop using child labor and so forth. And then in America, as you said, that factory farming example, for example, but there are other mechanisms, one of which is consumer pressure. And you are right now articulating on a podcast, a, a very profound dichotomy between your genuine attachment to the brands and the Apple products and your genuine revulsion against the human rights abuses that you feel are associated with it. And that is the way that change can happen. I mean, like Nike, whether it's completely changed its game or its practices, I don't know, but famously was an example of there are sweatshops in China or the Far East and, you know, over time, if there's enough pressure, then governments will legislate and companies will change to a degree. To what degree? And how corrupt or non-corrupt it is, is a different question. But I, I have got, again, talking about Chris and, and historical examples, I do have faith that that is possible. One should not just assume that it will happen, but I do think that consumers can have a big, big impact, particularly in America where consumers are kind of treated like gods on the one hand we sort of spoil children in the UK like that as well now, but on the other hand, they, they have a lot of power and that means that corporations listen to them and that ultimately means that obviously politicians listen to them as well, so. I think there is a mechanism for change if we choose to grasp it. Yeah,
3: it's generally slow. I mean, I, I, that's yeah. an example of like vegetarian and vegan options at restaurants is a response right. to consumer demand. Mm-hmm. And that's from people saying, look, and there's plenty of people who eat vegan for a number of different reasons. Some of them cruelty to animals. Like I don't eat animals because they're let me think, And like, that's their only reason. Now, if they just did that at home and never went out to eat, never told anybody and like never had the discussion and never tried to convey why they believe that. You know, it would just be down. And like, like Jason, like you at home, not buying an iPhone isn't going to change anything. Yeah. Right. So like, what can we do to like make yeah. ourselves feel like we're actually making change and actually make a change? That's when you understand something and you share it with people and why you're concerned yeah. about it. And then maybe you do get a, an old flip phone that you carry it around as a reminder and you show it to people. Like, oh, Jason, like he's actually doing this stuff. Oh, like mm-hmm. this, this vegan is actually doing this. And now McDonald's and Burger King are selling, you know, vegan. I'm sure their corporate wasn't thrilled you like, I'm going to make a vegan thing. But mm-hmm. well, they did it in response to consumer demand. And I, I hopefully see a future where there is no factory farm and you can get just a perfect burger that all these, all these things, but that it's, it's a process. It's a, everything that's happening in Africa right now, it's a, it's a generational change, right. but awareness and, and using the internet and the things yeah. that we have, I mean, that those are things that can help push things in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And I and just have, I just try to have confidence over enough time and this is, played out over so many different things through human history that we do get better. We don't always go in a perfectly straight line, but over enough time, everything's going up in terms of human well-being and infant mortality rates and and life expectancy and healthcare and access to medicine, all these things that are from perfect, but it's getting better. And as long as it keeps getting better, then you do kind of feel like we are drunk.
1: Yeah, they say ignorance is bliss, right? And I think Mm -hmm. it's the blatant ignorance of it uh, as a topic that people ignore that allow it to continue for that, you know, you talk about the length of time, right? The the, the way that that gets shortened in terms of change is enough people become aware of it and decide this is not okay. Yeah. And that we, we demand that the buyers of these minerals, right, have more due diligence on their sourcing. And that, yes, they have pressure to perform and hit that, but the pressure of them buying those sort of conflict minerals, it should be greater than the pressure of them making a dollar for their shareholder. Yeah, and that only that. comes through, you know, con- it only comes through basically the populace, the, the the buyer, the consumers putting their foot down and saying, hey, this is not acceptable. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it reminds me a little bit of sort of like the blood diamond. And now... You know, I'm like, I was driving, I don't know, so listening to the sports radio and they have these commercials for diamonds, you know, for, for guys to go buy diamonds. And a lot, a big part of the marketing message was, hey, these are conflict-free diamonds, you know, it's like, so it, it became part of the marketing yeah. everyday language. And I think that level of awareness needs to happen around rare earth minerals yeah. in order to, you know, produce that kind of change. And so I think books like that should, should be like heralded and said, Hey, you need to pay attention. You need to read this book is a hard read, but it's the right thing to do. You need to have awareness. You need to be telling other people about it. Yeah, totally.
2: Well, if you guys want to get a a gut punch, read a, you know, read Cobalt Red or you get the audible. That was com- really compelling to me. I like audible books or I just read the one- reviews, you know, because you'll see people's toil over the issue.
0: Michael. I think one thing that gives me hope to, to follow on what you were saying there, Kyle, is that the, there's i intri- how can I put this, okay, I'm just going to say a virtue signaling and buying an electric car. So there's a very conscious choice that people make. And like I say, this is my parents bought a, a, a sort of hybrid years ago. My, my, this is like in- incredibly, oddly familiar territory, this kind of debate from my youth, <laughs> Yeah, my mum was very obsessed about many such ethical conflicts and such people are going to be very, very inclined to be A, shocked as you were Jason, I think, and B, to put pressure on companies, possibly more than consumers in general or of other things, like I don't know how ethical or, or not diamond consumers are. I don't know. I, I, it's not the first thing that would spring to mind when I bought a diamond uh, ring for my, my wife when we got engaged, for example, but it would certainly spring to mind about buying a, a car, the impact on, impact on the environment and the impact on other ethical things such as human rights in other countries. So I have hoped that as a sector, it would move quicker than the historical average because of those factors. So there you go. Mm-hmm. This is this quite a departure. I, I, I kind of, yeah, well, it's quite serious, but I, I like these these more meaty discussions, to be honest, but it's, it certainly shows that a lot of the time in the e-commerce there's an implicit assumption that, you know, selling more stuff is good and that's it, you know, end of discussion as opposed to there's always things cut both ways. <laughs> there's always a the cost to stuff. And in this case, I guess the cost is quite traumatizingly high. And hopefully over time that can be changed. I think uh, there's a sort of general feeling that we may be able to over time work work towards a better life. And let's hope that's true. Well, folks, we better wrap it up there, I guess, because we're going to go and do other things. Quite a sobering but interesting thing at the end. That's Cobalt Red by Siddharth Kara, British University professor. And I'm quite glad to escape for once the superficiality of uh, Valentine's Day and other sort of ridiculously over-commercialized festivals, which hopefully it doesn't have a hugely horrendous impact on the world, although actually, Chris is probably about to tell me that, you know, all the chocolate sauce in the world doing you know, small babies, but I, I
3: think there is conflict. Least- yeah. You can buy conflicts free chocolate if you want, but I, got, I know we've yeah. gone long, I, I think it's important to, to add to this because Jason, you found out about this through probably something that was recommended by this book. And then mm-hmm. you listened to this book and now you're sharing it here on a podcast. And the stuff that we talk about on the show is about self publishing and exposure and marketing and yeah. email and all. if someone has something that they're really interested in, there's nothing stopping them from doing a little research, putting together a book, putting a little marketing together. You don't have to do this for money. You can yeah. use all of the tools that we talk about here to spread a message and use any money that comes in to get your message out more and run ads and, and marketing and all all this other stuff. So to me, I mean that's that's a tie-in that I hope people are are thinking of. There's plenty of things that I'm poked. I'm very passionate about that I would publish books about, so I can get that message out there and get it established on Amazon and have a way to distribute content and information globally so that you can spread a message. Because I'm confident that most people are simply not aware. They don't know how bad something is around diamonds or chocolate or minerals or all these, everything related. People don't know about these things. Once they know, then they can make better decisions. And that's an easy way. Like So people just aren't feeling guilty all the time to be like, no, I feel like I am doing something and I'm using... The massive amounts of technology that we we have it's amazing that i can literally publish a book about this topic and i already looked up the book i put it in my card the second book when you search for their for that book is a summary that someone has itself published kind of piggybacking on what their someone else's book but it's the number two result on amazon so anything they put in there is going to get read by some people and you can send out a message that hopefully adds to the the changing of things for you know, just the world in general and improving people's lives who are like really being directly affected in a negative way.
0: Brilliant. That's a really, really lovely way to end the show. I think it's a reminder that we have a lot of power in our hands as deft marketers and we can use it in whichever way, which doesn't just mean making money. As Jason, you're a prime example, because obviously you just casually mentioned your book, which is selling really well, which is for your charity, not for commercial activity, right? So you're, you're, you're in that business. Yeah, totally. I can see you're still recovering from reading this book. I'm kind of wary of reading it now. I'm going to have to go buy myself a copy. And it's see a what it's tough
2: one. It's a tough one. But anyway, yeah. Thanks for indulging the conversation. Um, it was a bit far afield, but valuable. It's
0: an interesting one, No, nonetheless. Yeah. So, folks, if you want some thought-provoking conversations, sometimes tangential to e-commerce, but actually, really, it's all about commerce and there there are costs as well as benefits. Then get yourself over to the dot com and also don't forget to subscribe on any podcast near you. And thank you very, very much for joining us today in a really thought-provoking episode. That was the e-commerce leader podcast with Michael Vizi in London, England, Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. We offer you free help on our website, including PDFs, videos, and mini courses on topics like traffic, products, and sales channels. Some are for Amazon, most are for any sales channel. To get those and to stay up to date with our podcasts, go to www.vecommerceleader.com. Thanks for listening.